Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Throughout history, the Spirit of God has visited us with spiritual awakenings. We call them revivals. These movements have shaped the church, saved the lost, and sent society on a more godly trajectory. William Nichol once wrote, It is by revivals that the church of God makes its most visible advance. When all things seem calm, when no breath stirs the air, when the sea is like lead and the sky is low and gray, when all worship seems to have ended but the worship of vanity, it is then that the Spirit of God is poured upon the church. Suddenly, the Christianity of the apostles and martyrs, not that of the philosophers and liberals, rises from the catacombs of oblivion and appears young and fresh in the midst of the obsolete things of yesterday. And it is for this we long, for real Christianity to rise and for God's kingdom to advance. Some historians call the Welsh revival of 1904 the greatest spiritual awakening of all time. Taverns went bankrupt when vast segments of the society gave up alcohol. New mules were purchased for the coal mines when the old mules didn't know how to take orders now that their owners no longer used curse words. Amazing things happened. The Welsh revival spawned the Azusa Street revival that birthed many of today's Pentecostal denominations. Other historians point to the 18th century's first and second great awakenings as tremendous times of revival. The first great awakening led to the abolition of slavery in England and changes to child labor laws. The second great awakening saw American churches packed to the gills here in the South, 
Slave owners and their slaves would gather together in open fields to worship God because the churches couldn't accommodate the huge crowds. It was the beginning of the camp meeting, a tradition of Southern revival. Our family of churches, Calvary Chapel, was born in a revival. In the 1960s, we saw a generation of young people become disillusioned by materialism in the Vietnam War and the racial inequality in our country. They rejected the morality of the previous generation and immersed themselves in drugs and free sex. But then God sent a Jesus movement which swept across our country. The Jesus movement taught the Bible, giving the young people the truth they lacked. And it emphasized the Holy Spirit, the heavenly high for which they craved. It began in the heart of Chuck and Kay Smith on the beaches of Southern California and swept the country. We could mention the revival of the 12th century, led by Peter Waldo and the Waldensians. They believed everyone should have a Bible in their own language. Or we could talk about the Protestant Reformation that trumpeted the five solas, by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We can even go back to the inaugural revival in the upper room there on the Feast of Pentecost when the Spirit of God was first poured out on the church. That day, Peter shared the gospel and 3,000 souls were saved. When it comes to revival, I like the observation by Scottish preacher Alexander Whitey. He says this, There is a divine mystery about revivals. God's sovereignty is in them. In other words, when the Spirit of God moves in revival, patterns and predictability fly out the window. God takes the helm, and the unexpected occurs. And nowhere was this truer than in the greatest spiritual awakening of all time. It's ironic, but the most spectacular revival had the most unlikely messenger, and it came through the most unusual circumstances. I'm talking about Jonah and the Nineveh revival. We read about this great awakening beginning here in chapter 3. Of course, remember the story to this point. God sent Jonah to warn Nineveh of a coming judgment. But Jonah hated Ninevites. In fact, he hated all things Assyrian. These people were bloodthirsty and brutal and Gentiles. We discussed how Jonah may have been personally violated by Assyrian raiders who would make their nighttime rampages across the border into the Galilee, preying on the people who lived there. Perhaps Jonah was the victim of some kind of atrocity. Whatever it was, he was deeply bitter and angry toward these people. He carried a grudge against the Assyrians. And so rather than travel the 550 miles to Nineveh to obey God and to call them to repentance, He boarded a cargo ship headed 2,000 miles in the opposite direction to the faraway city of Tarshish. But no one outruns God and succeeds. For God hurled a storm, and he directed the dice, and he prepared a great fish. And somewhere under the deep blue Mediterranean, between Sheol and the sea's surface, the reluctant prophet came to his senses. Trapped and miserable in the belly of despair, he cried out to God. He realized, as he said in chapter 2, that to forsake God is to forsake mercy. 
If there's any hope in this world for love and life and forgiveness and peace, it is to be found in God, with God, not apart from him. Jonah agreed to wholly follow God. He concluded, salvation is of the Lord. And that's when God, in chapter 2, verse 10, commanded the great fish, the prophet's uber, to puke up Jonah onto dry land. Imagine your family, your own vacation, you got a day at the beach, you're boogie boarding there with the kids, when suddenly a whale pops up in the shallow water and blows hard. The great fish heaves its lunch onto the beach. And what a sight you see. Slimy seaweed, half-chewed squid, ocean trash. Yeah, right there in the midst of it all, something's moving. It's a man. At least you think it's a man. This battered and bloated and boiled and blistered and buttered and bleached and now bald-headed man is still alive. And God is ready to try this again, which is where we begin in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying. And isn't this wonderful? You know, there would be no revivals if it wasn't for second times. Let's all be thankful our God is not a one-shot God. Queen Elizabeth I, she ruled England and Ireland from 1558 to 1603. She was a skillful ruler, and she was loved by her people. She brought peace to her homeland. But on one occasion, Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, he was bowing low before the queen when the earl broke wind. That's right. He passed gas. He couldn't believe it. It was audible. It was odorous. Well, the Earl of Oxford was so humiliated. He was so ashamed. He left England. For the next several years, he traveled all over Europe just to avoid coming back and making an appearance before the queen. Finally, though, out of necessity, he returned home, and he stood there before Queen Elizabeth. As he stood there, not knowing what to say, Elizabeth spoke first. She said kindly, My Lord, I have forgot the fart. Hey, if ever there was a stinker, it was Jonah. And he didn't just smell when he exited the belly of the fish. Jonah had stunk it up all the way from Joppa. The prophet's pride and prejudice, his stubbornness and selfishness had been a stench in God's nostrils. Jonah's rebellion had reeked. His attitude was fishy long before he spent time in the belly of the whale. Please pardon the expression, but I can think of no more fitting label for the prophet Jonah than an old fart. (laughs) Yet God was willing to forgive this Jonah. He overlooked his noxious attitude and gave him a second chance. Isn't this wonderful, wonderful wording? The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time just like it did to Adam and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Gideon and Samson and David and Peter and even Sandy. Author William Banks once wrote, we are moved to speak of Jonah's God as the God of the second chance, 
But honest, sober reflection compels the saint to speak of him as the God of the 999th chance. Understand, it is the very nature of our great God to keep forgiving and forgetting. He is the God of the second chance and third chance and fourth chance and even the 999th chance. He even forgives stinkers like you and me. When Jesus told Peter that he should forgive his enemies, not just seven times, but 70 times seven, he wasn't asking Peter to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. Jonah's proof that God doesn't put us on the shelf just because we've made a mistake. Hey, you may have staggered in here today. You may have just stumbled in these doors, not really knowing why. Maybe you've been on the run from God. You feel like you've been in the belly of a fish. In recent weeks, you've been miserable, trapped, desperate, hopeless. Helpless is how you could describe yourself. You feel like God has washed his hands of you. Oh, not so, friend. No way, Jose. I hope you understand. God is a coach with a no-cut policy. As long as you're honest about your failures and willing to change, you can still be on God's team. Jonah might have gone on the disabled list or the injured reserve, but when he repents in the belly of the fish, God reactivates him and gives him another shot. And God will do the same for you. If you repent, if you embrace God's will today, you too can start over. It's been said, the victorious Christian life isn't a line of unbroken triumphs. It's a series of new beginnings. Well, verse 2 tells us that God repeated the same instructions to Jonah that he gave him initially in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And preach to it the message that I tell you. Now, now I want you to notice this. God gives us second chances, but similar commands. His will doesn't change just because you once found it objectionable. This was the same direct directive that, when, that God gave to Jonah when he was first called. Just because God calls us to start over doesn't mean he now lures the bar. Like Jonah's failure, our sin, it's not God's fault. It isn't that God did something wrong or that there's something wrong with God's plan, that his standard is too hard or he lacks the resources we need. No, we fail God because we aren't willing to trust him and submit to the changes he requires. Years ago, back in those ancient days when I was in school, if you flunked a grade, you went back and repeated it until you passed. You didn't just get moved along for the school to save face. If you couldn't master 10th grade, you weren't ready for 11th. And this is God's policy in the school of discipleship. He does give second chances, but he doesn't change the curriculum. His assignments stay the same until we do whatever it takes to learn the lesson. Well, this time, though, Jonah obeys. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, how much time transpired between Jonah's expulsion on the beach and the second time the Lord spoke to him, we're not sure. Perhaps it was immediately. And we don't really know where the fish transported Jonah. We assume that the fish spit him out somewhere near Joppa where he had boarded the boat, or at least somewhere along the Israeli coastline, but we're not sure. 
The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Jonah was actually puked up on the shore of the Black Sea, a few hundred miles closer to Nineveh, his destination. Remember when Jonah disobeyed and ran from God, we're told that he went down. I mean, like everything about his life went downhill. He was on a downward trajectory, down to Joppa, down into the boat, down into the sea, down into the fish's belly. But when he repents and obeys God, he heads up all of a sudden. He gets puked up and he shows up on the beach, actually a few hundred miles closer to the targeted town. In other words, it doesn't take God near as long to move Jonah up as it did for Jonah to get so far down. This is encouraging to me. You need to know that God is eager for you to possess a good life, a joyful life, a blessed life. And he'll move along the restoration as quickly as possible, but you've got to repent. Verse 3 tells us, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. A three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Now, three times in this book, Nineveh is called that great city. Here it's called an exceedingly great city. In the early 18th century BC, Nineveh was the capital of the world's only superpower, the Assyrian Empire. Usually an ancient city's walls reflected its strength, and this was certainly true of Nineveh. Its walls were colossal, 100 foot high, 40 foot thick. Three chariots could race atop the walls side by side. Add a 1,500 watchtowers, and this was quite impressive. It was an amazing city. Now here we're told Nineveh was a three-day journey in extent. A day's journey for the pedestrian people of the ancient world was about 20 miles. That meant that Nineveh had a circumference of 60 miles, comparable to many modern cities today. Archaeologists tell us, though, that the walls around Nineveh proper were not that expansive, so that the 60 miles must have included the suburban areas as well. Apparently, Jonah preached to Metro Nineveh. And once Jonah arrived, he didn't beat around the bush. I mean, he preached from day one, and he did it boldly and fearlessly and unashamedly. He cried out to the people in verse 4, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, you really got to imagine what this was like. Ancient Nineveh is now the modern-day Iraqi city, Mosul. It's been in the news. Until just recently, the city of Mosul was an ISIS stronghold. It's just been liberated. Imagine you going to an ISIS stronghold wrapped in the Christian flag, standing on the street corner preaching that Muhammad is a false prophet and that Jesus is the only way to God. Now this was Jonah's mission. Jonah was a Jew in the heart of a pagan Gentile city proclaiming the message of the one true God among idolatrous people who believed in many gods. Before his ordeal, Jonah probably viewed this as a risky assignment, as lethal, as dangerous. After three days and three nights in Shamu's stomach, what could be worse? I guess he figured, why not? This time when God calls, come what may, Jonah obeys. And notice again Jonah's amazing sermon in verse 4. 
Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's just eight words in English. Even shorter in Hebrew, just five words. And it makes you wonder, was there more to this message or was this just it? Of course, this could be appealing to you. Wow, Pastor Sandy, eight-word sermons. Could we try that? (laughs) You know, Josephus, he makes this statement. He went to the city Nineveh where he stood so as to be heard and preached that in a very little time they should lose the dominion of Asia. The idea was that Nineveh and Assyria were about to be conquered by another nation. But I'm not sure it was Jonah's wording that was as important as it was God's waiting of 40 days. You see, in Oriental culture, the number 40 had a special symbolic significance. 40 was the number of probation and testing. You remember Moses was on the backside of the desert for 40 years. The Hebrews wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tested by Satan for 40 days. After his resurrection, Jesus was seen by his disciples for 40 days before he was ascended to heaven. And when Nineveh heard that God was waiting 40 days before he judged them, they must have reasoned, God is testing us. If God is waiting 40 days to judge us, it means he's giving us time to repent. And if we do, he might just have mercy on us and spare us. Well, verse 5 tells us, So the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. Please remember, in ancient times, in modern times, in Old Testament, in New Testament, for Jews and for Gentiles, salvation is always by faith. You believe God. You trust God and His promise. Repentance, turning from your sin, sets the stage But no one is saved unless they believe in God's promise. Well, as Jonah preached, the Ninevites believed God. They believed his warning. Certainly, they knew God meant business. But apparently, they also believed his waiting. For God to delay his judgment for 40 days, it meant that he still loved them, that he wanted them to repent. If not, his judgment would have been instantaneous. Notice, too, the Ninevites never questioned the reason for God's judgment. This is interesting. And Jonah's warning didn't give them an explanation. Apparently, these people were well aware of the cause of God's displeasure. They knew they had sinned. Assyria had forsaken the one true God to follow the idolatrous religion of Babel. Though they believed in many gods, Ishtar was their chief deity. She was a fertility goddess and the goddess of war. Thus, Nineveh worshipped sex and violence. And this was evidenced by how the Assyrian troops treated those they defeated. They specialized in torture tactics and they ravaged the women that they conquered. In one sense, Jonah was, was certainly right about these Ninevites. They were a mean and an immoral race. You'd be hard-pressed to find a group of people more deserving of God's judgment and less likely to believe and repent. Yet Jonah made the mistake all too common among Christians today. Why is it we tend to write people off as hopeless, as unreachable, as unredeemable? Why is it we underestimate the power of the gospel and the love and patience of our God? 
Too often we forget the miracle that God worked in us. There is no one, I mean no one, too far gone to be saved by Jesus Christ. No one is outside of the reach of God's grace. Paul wrote to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Assyria reveled in violence and sexual perversion, and yet God miraculously saved them. And I got to say it while I'm here. There are two characteristics that sum up American culture in the 21st century. They're the same as what summed up ancient Assyria. Our country, too, has a taste for violence and a lust for sexual pleasure. Hey, from video games to cage fights to road rage to rogue shootings to gang wars to the bullying problems in our schools to domestic abuse, Americans are becoming a more and more and more violent people. And we're becoming a more lust-obsessed people. Today, every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video is made in America. 40 million Americans regularly visit pornographic sites. It's shocking, but 35% of internet downloads, that's more than one in three, are porn-related. We live in a world sick with perversion and violence. Our society today is out of control when it comes to sexual appetites and violent impulses. People today have very little restraint. Like the ancient Assyrians, many Americans today live to satisfy their base desires, regardless of the cost to themselves and their families. Yet here's a ray of hope. Ancient Assyria was more perverted and violent than modern America. Yet the Spirit of God convicted Nineveh of their sin through the preaching of Jonah. When confronted with the mercy and righteousness of Almighty God, Nineveh repented. And if revival can come to Assyria, then it can come to America. This should give us hope. A spiritual awakening can occur in the heart of your stubborn spouse and your perverted neighbor and your out-of-control teenager and even in that sinful you. Jonah 3 teaches us that no one is beyond God's reach. The Ninevites not only believed God, but they repented of their sin. Verse 5 tells us, They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Fasting and sackcloth, these were expressions of repentance. Sackcloth was a rough and gritty cloth, the texture burlap. Fasting and sackcloth were ways of renouncing fleshly desires and pleasures. They gave tangible evidence of your willingness to change. Notice verse 6. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose with, from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is amazing. This revival made it all the way to the Assyrian White House. King Trump showed fruits of repentance. Amazing. Actually, for you history buffs, the king of Assyria at the time was Azardan III. Even the emperor himself was struck by Jonah's message. God's spirit swept over the land of Assyria, reaching even to the throne. And this brings up the question, how did Jonah have such an amazing impact on the city of Nineveh? 
Obviously, it wasn't the content of his sermons. I mean, they were just eight words long, and apparently the same eight words he preached over and over and over again. Let me give you four answers for what I think was going on. First of all, the time was right. Secondly, the prophet was white. They heard of his flight. And then finally, the Spirit showed his might. First, the time was right. During the reign of Azardan III, a series of disasters had occurred in Assyria that the people had interpreted as omens or signs. There had been a solar eclipse, a very scary phenomenon for ancient people. An earthquake and a famine had rocked the Assyrian Empire, as well as a few surprising and uncommon military defeats. All this combined made the people open to a message from God. They were looking to the heavens for help. Second, the prophet was white. I don't mean Caucasian. I mean, Jonah was Jewish. Earlier, I described Jonah as battered, bloated, boiled, blistered, buttered, bleached, bald, but alive. Three days baking in gastric juices in a fish's belly, buddy, will definitely alter your appearance. It probably singed his hair. It may even have bleached out the pigment of his skin, made him stark white. When Jonah walked into Nineveh, he just looked fishy. He immediately captured people's attention. And they heard of his flight. In Luke chapter 11, verse 30, Jonah, Jesus, Jesus, our Lord, said, Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Apparently, his story was known among the people somehow. Perhaps 60 Minutes did a segment on him. Maybe he was interviewed by Fox and Friends. I'm not sure. But somehow, the Ninevites knew that Jonah didn't want to come to their city. And God had to chase him down. And the fact that God did said something to them about God's love for them. His testimony highlighted God's great love for the Ninevites. It also reminded them how impossible it would be for them to escape God's judgment if they didn't repent. All this combined. It's also interesting that the ancient Ninevites, they worshiped Dagon, the fish god. Dagon was half man and half fish. He had the head of a, of, of a man, I'm sorry, a head, the, head of a, yeah, the head of a man and the tail of a fish. A manifestation of Dagon in Assyrian mythology was the fish man Oannes. In fact, the two names, Oannes and Jonah, in the original languages had a very similar spelling. And it's possible that Jonah's submarine ride in the fish's belly made the pagan Ninevites initially think that he was of their own god, Oannes. Of course, this gave Jonah an immediate platform to be heard. And allowed him to preach to them the truth of God's word. Well, the time was right. The prophet was white. They heard of his flight. But most importantly, the cause of this great revival was the spirit of God showed his might. When Jonah repented in chapter 2, he said in verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. Jonah's deliverance had been the work of God as are all true conversions. It's the Holy Spirit that ultimately draws men to Jesus. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nineveh's revival, as with all subsequent spiritual awakenings, was a sovereign work 
of God's amazing grace. And that's what we're praying for today. Well, verse 7 records the king's royal edict. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This was amazing. The king was so serious about repentance that he even orders the Assyrian livestock to share and wear the symbols of repentance. Put Rover in sackcloth. Empty out Spot's bowl. He's not eaten for a while. Start muffin on a fast. Start dressing boots in burlap. We're going to show God we're serious about repentance. It wasn't that the animals had a relationship with God or they had any kind of moral capacities. The king just wanted to include all he could in Nineveh's attempt to show God that they meant business in their decision to turn to him. This king took repentance seriously, as should we. When God looked down on Nineveh, the king wanted him to see cows and horses in sackcloth and ashes. Pigs used to live in high on the hog, now fasting. Rebellious cats. You know all cats are rebellious. They never do what you tell them to do. All cats sounding a repentant meow. I mean, the king wanted God to look down from heaven on a repentant Nineveh, even to the point of saying, Holy cow. (laughs) Holy cow. Of course, this isn't the first example of animals getting religion. Already in this story, we've seen a whale more obedient to God than a prophet. But have you ever heard about the Christian bear? You got to hear about the Christian bear. This guy's walking through the woods one day when all of a sudden a bear jumps out and starts to chase him. Well, the bear finally corners him. There's no hope. There's nowhere to go. He's about to be eaten. So he prays, Lord, please let this be a Christian bear. Well, suddenly the man looks up, he opens his eyes, and he sees the bear down on his knees praying. He thinks, praise the Lord, this is a Christian bear. He walks over to give his brother bear a big hug when he overhears the hungry bear praying, Lord, thank you for this food I'm about to receive. (laughs) Notice verse 9. The king then asks, Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Can you imagine? Who can tell? This is amazing to me. God never promises them forgiveness. Their repentance was based on a hunch. They're all just thinking, well, maybe God will change his mind if we repent. But they didn't know. They weren't sure. In contrast, those of us who know Christ, we've been given a promise. 1 John 1 verse 9 is God's guarantee if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can take that to the bank. Our repentance rests on God's word and his promise. How much more should we be willing to turn to him? 
As I mentioned at the outset, throughout history, God has launched these many revivals where his presence was felt, where sinners were convicted, where people repented, where lives were changed, where societies were altered. And often it happened on a massive scale. And our merciful God has been faithful to send these spiritual awakenings whenever they've been needed. I'm praying that God will send revival to America. Yet few revivals compared to Nineveh's great awakening. At Jonah's preaching, a whole metropolis, a million plus people repent of their sin and turn to God. It was amazing. It'd be like everyone in New York City today confessing their sins and trusting in Jesus. From the thugs in Washington Heights to the bankers on Wall Street. Again, this may have been the greatest, most comprehensive outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the history of the world. Well, verse 10 reveals heaven's reaction to Nineveh's repentance. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. You know, rather than be spared 40 days, their repentance bought Nineveh an additional 175 years. The greatest miracle in this book is not that God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. It was that he forgave and saved the wicked city of Nineveh. Sadly, though, the next generation of Ninevites, they returned to their violence and their perversions. And again, God sent a Hebrew prophet to warn them. Nahum 3 verse 1 begins, Woe to the bloody city! A reference to the violent city of Nineveh. But tragically, Nineveh failed to respond to Nahum's warnings as they had Jonah's. And finally, in the year 612 B.C., God's word to Nineveh was fulfilled. The city was overthrown by Babylon. Seven years later, the great Assyrian empire was no more. Well, verse 10 reveals God's reaction to Nineveh's repentance. But in chapter 4, verse 1, we learn of Jonah's. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Jonah experienced every missionary's dream come true. How many pastors and evangelists have prayed for God to pour out his spirit and to shake a city with repentance, yet they never lived to see it happen? But it happened for Jonah. And when it did, he was displeased. He hated Nineveh and he was angry with God that he didn't hate them too. The Ninevites didn't deserve God's mercy. See, the prophet Jonah forgot the definition of mercy. It's love that nobody deserves. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 quotes the words of God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And this is God's heart for people today. God loves the people he's created. And he desires for us to be forgiven and to be healed. He wants to work in our lives. Here's a closing thought. And I think it's an important one. 
when God prompts your spirit to reach out to a Ninevite that is an unbeliever at work or at school or maybe on your block or in your family, a person that you might be inclined to write off is unreachable. You might be thinking, man, that girl, she's into some kinky stuff. Or, man, that fella, he's a violent person. Just don't think God's spirit is only working on your side of the encounter. For he is also working in the heart of the person he's asking you to love. The Holy Spirit moved mightily in Nineveh. Mercy is for those who don't deserve mercy. In God's heart, there is even mercy for the merciless. All that stood in the way of Nineveh's salvation was for a runaway prophet to turn around and to obey God. And all that may be standing in the way of your friend's salvation is for you to obey. Chapter 3 teaches us that no one is outside of God's reach.